Welcome to Dear World, a podcast and radio show hosted by OPAL, an organization committed to building collective power and AAPI feminist leadership in Ohio. Every episode will bring forth a different theme where AAPI and other BIPOC women, non-binary and trans folks from all over the U.S. will share their stories, unfiltered and raw. We ask them if they had a chance to share their story with the world, what would they say? Many of you may be tuning in from what is now known as the state of Ohio. We want to acknowledge that we are on the traditional territory of hundreds of different indigenous tribes and nations, including the Erie, Wyandot, Mingo, Shawnee, Delaware, Miami, Huron, Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Odawa. Indigenous people are still here, and an acknowledgement is just the first step of repairing the broken relationship caused by genocide, broader oppression, and unrecognized sovereignty. If you want to find out more about the traditional territory where you are, you can visit native-land.ca. My name is Ria Butt. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm very excited to get the chance to co-host the podcast this week. I'm the Value Our Families organizer with OPAL focusing on immigration and immigration policy. And I am South Asian American. And a fun fact about me is that I was a foreign exchange student for a year in high school in Turkey. And for those of you who are familiar with Dear World, my name is Tessa Schwan. I'm one of the regular co-hosts of the podcast. Um, my pronouns are she and they. I am a daughter of Chinese immigrants and one of the co-directors of OPAL. Um, I'm also excited to be getting my second COVID vaccine shot tomorrow. So <laughs> welcome to everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, we're really excited that you're tuning in to our fifth episode. I do want to say that when I, I think a lot of Americans, when they think about struggles of immigration and um, just immigration, dehumanization of immigrants, I think it tends to be a spectacle. Um, and it certainly can be um, the babies in cages or um, families being separated. And it, it certainly is that, and it is true. But my family struggles are really at the intersection of class, race, and immigration status. And um, it unfolded in very mundane, kind of quotidian ways. In today's episode, we are chatting with Eunice Um about the impact of our immigration system. Eunice Um is a PhD candidate in the history of art at Ohio State University. She studies modern and contemporary art with a transnational focus on the United States and East Asia. Her dissertation, The Subversive Possibilities of Diaspora, Aesthetic Subjectivities of Migration and Displacement in South Korean and Japanese Art, 1960s to present, examines the conditions of migration and the diasporic aesthetic subjectivities in the works of contemporary Japanese and South Korean art from the 1960s to today. She currently teaches Introduction to Asian American Studies at OSU. Thank you so much for joining us, Eunice. Thank you for having me here today. I'm so excited to be in dialogue with you all too. 
A lot of you may know storytelling is a big part of our culture at Opal. So we'd love to start by talking a little bit about personal story and family stories. So Eunice, could you tell us a little bit about your life with your family before arriving in the U.S. and why your family wanted to come to the U.S. from South Korea? Yes. Um, so I, uh, I'm from South Korea. I was born in South Korea and I grew up in a city called Kimhae, um, which is a small city near um, Busan, which might be a more well-known city. Um, and we came here um, 2002, 2001 or 2002. Um, we, um, we lived in Kimhae. With all my relatives, it's a city that my dad grew up in, and um, I lived close to my cousins and my grandfather, my grandmother, and um, aunts and uncles. And um, it's it was a quite different experience when we moved to the U.S. Um, we just it was just our family and no one else. And yeah, I'm not really sure why we. I'm not sure if it's accurate to say that we wanted to come here. More like it was um, like so many other families, we felt compelled to come here for many reasons. We are part of this like wave of immigrants from Asia um, in the late 1990s and early 2000s after the Asian market crisis who left their home country for better economic opportunities. Um, and of course, um, South Korea went through um, really big economic recession in the late 1990s and our family was part of that history um, and kind of thinking about the ways that um, it was really implicated within the U.S. kind of intervention in Korean economics and my dad studied in college um, college in the U.S. so I guess it just kind of made sense to come here for us. Thank you for sharing that and some of what you were sharing about your family story definitely resonated with my experiences too. My family moved to the US from Australia in 2000, but prior to that, before I was born, my parents immigrated from India to Australia. We had a different set of circumstances that were largely driven by personal choice in coming from Australia, but I think in the late 90s and early 2000s there was this idea among a lot of immigrants that there were certain opportunities in the u.s and parents wanted to do what they could to set their kids up to have stable educations and to be successful in the u.s so that's definitely something i can relate to in my own family immigration story Eunice, could you also tell us a little bit about what words or feelings come up when you think about your family's immigration journey? Yeah, um, and I'm so glad you talked about the ways that a lot of immigrants come to the U.S. kind of imagining this American dream, right, and kind of achieving this um, economic stability and education and for their children, um, which I think my parents definitely um, had for us. Um, but when I think about our immigration journey and our family's journey um, in the U.S., it's, I can't say that it's been positive. I, the first word that comes to my mind is trauma. It's ongoing and um, we were really isolated. Um, but also at the same time, it is collective in the sense that I see the struggles of my family went through um, in so many 
different other immigrant families as well. Thinking back, I, I'm still kind of trying to see how I understand my family's journey in immigration. And um, one thing that I do want to share is that, and I can share this now um, today um, because my dad was undocumented. Um, so we, our family, uh, my dad um, was undocumented for about two decades and um, he was deported about three years ago. So with that immigration status and kind of constantly living in fear and secrecy and having it was almost kind of like our family versus the world and we we were we had this like secret that no one could know and everything else outside of our, our house felt like a danger risk so it was i think there was a lot of trauma with that and with um with the deportation and everything so i'm yeah i'm still kind of processing this journey i guess Thank you so much for sharing that, Eunice. And yeah, it happened three years ago, but the the impacts are still still lingering. I also really resonated with um, just you mentioned the sense of isolation coming here, as as well as um, you know the choice to come to the U.S. not necessarily being like a full choice because of the economic conditions. Um, in your country. So that's definitely a part of my family story as well. And I was surprised to learn my dad actually didn't want to come here, but his parents sort of told him like, this is what you're going to do. <laughs> he was the youngest of, of three boys um, and his older brothers had gotten married and kind of settled down and had kids. So my dad was the only one who went to college and yeah, he was sort of the the mama's boy. Just do whatever the parents tell you to do. So, um, you know, he loved his parents so much and then came to the US because they told they asked him to. He just was so far away from them for so long. And that was really hard, but he was, you know, coming here to honor their wishes. Yeah, you mentioned um, how a little bit of how, you know, the US legal immigration system has has impacted your family. And I I have come to understand that most people in the US, um, including myself until more recently, you just have very little knowledge about how our immigration system really works. There's a lot of false assumptions about standing in line, um, getting into a line and just waiting your turn. And so I think that lack of understanding uh, about the real impact that the immigration system has on families is harmful and also just very little understanding of the experiences of Asians, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders and how we fit into the immigration conversation. Um, so I want I want to ask you to respond to to that topic, like how has the legal immigration system um, had an impact on you and and these other families um, that you mentioned. You know, collectively, there's this shared experience. Um, what what kind of challenges have you and your family faced? Well, so I did go through this immigration process. So I um, I had um, permanent residency for a few years. I mean, for like a decade, 
and you have you have to I think stay, have stayed in the U.S. for about eight years before you can apply for citizenship. And I went through the naturalization process and everything. But even as someone who went through this immigration system, and I still like have a really difficult time understanding uh, what the like the whole system is and how some people become documented and some people don't become documented. And I, um, being an immigrant and having a family member, um, a loved one, um, undocumented has really completely shaped who I am and um, how I engage with the world and how I understand the world. And um, and I think my family's um, struggles and my struggles as an individual, and I want to profess by saying that, like, um, I... Um, I stand with working class immigrant, undocumented immigrant um, people, but I recognize my privileges as a um, someone with citizenship and um, someone who has a higher education and who can access things that a lot of people cannot. And I do want to say that when I, I think a lot of Americans, when they think about struggles of immigration and um, just immigration, dehumanization of immigrants, I think it tends to be a spectacle um, and it certainly can be um, the babies in cages or um, families being separated and it, it certainly is that and it is true but my family struggles are really at the intersection of class, race and immigration status and um, it unfolded in very mundane kind of quotidian ways and when I think about my trauma and it does include me visiting my dad at the detention center in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And that is a big event that happened, but there are small moments for about over a decade and two decades that happened that felt like a kind of inconvenience at the time. But looking back in hindsight, it's like, wow, that was like a really difficult time. And and I talk about this with my sister often, my sis, two sisters, and then they have a different accounts of our lives and we all kind of process or experience trauma differently and like for example so um growing up we were really we are working class and my dad was undocumented so we didn't have a car and i think this kind of inconveniences that um that a lot of immigrants experience not having a car on a daily basis we can't even really go grocery shopping and so we would like my mom and um my sisters would take a cab to go to a korean grocery store or my dad would go back and forth to a grocery store back to back like three four times to buy a week's worth of groceries or you know the kind of things were like inconvenient at the time and um it just became part of like our routine but looking back I was like that was like one of the barriers that we experienced as a working class um undocumented family or family that had an undocumented member who was our dad and um Another thing is that like we like my parents couldn't pick up my little sister from school. Like I have a little sister who's ten years younger than I am, and um, one day like um, there was like a was, like half day school because there was a snow like sudden snowstorm, and my sisters and my my sister, my mom, and I went to go pick up my little sister, and then everybody was like, getting into their cars, and like we had to walk, and then that was okay like with us and. Um, you know, but I think there's like a instinct kind of understanding. Even my sister was like five or six and 
she just like turned around and she said like, oh, I like walking. I don't need a car. Like it's I like the snow and things like that, you know, <laughs> like and we have these like memories of like just like mundane events that we kind of knew that this was a result of this systematic kind of um, disadvantages that we had and that became part of our lives. And um, we have a different understanding when we've gone past it and we have some time to kind of process these events, I guess. Did your younger sister know about like your family being mixed status? I'm not really sure. I I don't exactly know when when she became aware of these like immigration statuses or um, or when our dad was undocumented. Um, but she also it's really interesting because she has a very different understanding and approach to a lot of things and so we lived in this like a second floor of like a dentistry and we use a side side door and then we like we lived in a very small like apartment kind of thing place and i like never brought my friends home i i felt like really secretive and i didn't really have a lot of friends either in high school mainly because like we kind of had this like, sense of secrecy kind of haunting all of us throughout our our childhood but my little sister and she like had no like sense of shame she had she didn't feel embarrassed about any of these things and she would bring her friends home and she would like take her friends to a grocery store where our mom our mom worked as a cashier and buy korean snacks and she just felt really comfortable in these lifestyles and not really sure if she also felt that or she knew that or she just like felt okay with it or she there at that moment she didn't know what that actually entailed I'm not really sure yeah that's so interesting yeah how different your experiences were and I don't know the different ways that you either like respond or cope with like the situation that you're in yeah and I like I feel I think I learned a lot from my little sister because I I think I mean I definitely felt ashamed about a lot of things when I was younger and I I think I kept a lot of things a secret because I felt ashamed but I also think that there was like part of like I don't want to um, expose our parents or like our um, working class conditions to other people that felt like a secret that could protect our parents and our family but like looking at our sister, my little sister, who is just so confident and who is just so okay and <laughs> showing off our parents. And <laughs> and I wonder if that's something that I should have done. And um, that's something that could have protected our parents more than like the way, secret way that I've approached. I think immigration stories really affect siblings differently depending on their age and family order. My brother is almost nine years older than me, and I think our family immigration impacted him much more deeply because I was only four when we arrived in the U.S., and he was old enough to remember how our lives had changed and certain hardships that our parents went through, and I was kind of sheltered away from that. So being the oldest sibling and trying to watch out for me, I think he really bore the brunt of a lot of those challenges. and. I'm sure you did a lot to care for your younger siblings and help support them too. 
I I'm a middle child, so I was mostly absent from all of this. <laughs> My older sister really really carried all the weight, and it's yeah, it's really interesting because、um, even when our dad was getting deported, and we talk about this and how we've kind of what we remember and how we felt at the time, and we three of us we've experienced all. Same thing, but we have different accounts or recounts of this event. And I,、um, I was in Ohio at the time, and I was going through、um, take, taking my candidacy exams, and I couldn't visit my family when the whole thing really unfolded. I visited for like a week, but like my older sister、um, has always been kind of the person who takes care of our family matters, and. She was always financially like kind of stable and independent, and she she's the one who translated everything for our parents. And her a lot of her trauma kind of comes from meeting lawyers and you know、mm-hmm. um, meeting talking to the police officers or kind of trying to figure out the legal system and kind of that that aspect of it. While I was kind of absent from the whole thing and. I remember crying a lot, and I remember studying a lot, <laughs> kind of going through all of that. And then my little sister, of course, has her own ways to remember. She says that she remembers sleeping a lot, and <laughs> it obviously makes sense. But yeah, there are different,、um, really, immigration impacts、um, each member of the family really differently. Yeah, that resonates with me. I'm I'm the oldest of.、Um... Of my siblings, I have two younger sisters, and then、um, we have a, a baby half brother. Yeah, it's it definitely、um, resonates around like carrying the responsibility. For me, it wasn't like navigating the the legal or immigration system, but navigating like you know disability、uh, benefits and just things that you shouldn't be doing as like a a young person, you know, who's Normal, like, nor if I'm putting normal in quotations, but you know, other other people, other children have their own issues to deal with, but they're not usually thinking about, you know, this is how I am helping or protecting my my family, my parents. I resonate with your sister, <laughs> with your sister's experience, and also, I mean, what you said about the mundane, you know, everyday. Just realities of life, and those memories that you have of、um, of back then, like so many of those memories, kind of just having this the situation in the background, right? It's like something that I do think、um, immigration stories can be sensationalized, and it, yeah, it's not just about those dramatic like moments, but it's also about the everyday impact. And I think that a lot of immigration and having a being undocumented or having a family member who is undocumented has a lot to do with this kind of like white noise,、um, the way that you embody this like fear and anxiety like on a daily basis. Like my my older sister once again kind of、um, told me that she I think she still kind of practices practices this even though、um, it's not really necessary for her.、Um, Or for our family in this moment,、um, that she took a mental no- mental note of every place that checked ID. 
Yeah, and then she like we went we took a train once, and then she was really surprised that this isn't even like a flight. But why are they checking like IDs? So, like I should remember that, so we don't、mm. bring our dad here. And I like I remember, especially like、um, in like when I was in college, like 2010 ish, there was like Arizona anti-immigration laws that are being passed, and. Reading articles and random essays and just like crying in my dorm room all the time and like imagining our dad walking down the street and someone just like stopping him and wanting to see his ID and、um, this unrealistic but realistic kind of fears、um, haunting us on a daily basis and how that really shaped and informed our personality and our how we engage with the world、um, in a way. Yeah, it's kind of like a. Constant state of being hyper vigilant, being so aware of your surroundings, and I feel like that kind of stress—you know, so like so much continuous stress—builds up in the body,、mm-hmm. and it it would it would shape your personality. You also talked about like, you know, the feeling of secrecy and how. Your instinct of like how you could protect your parents was to keep things more secret, to keep things more private. I mean, that was, like I share that experience with you know things that were happening in my family, and I just wonder like where did I feel like that's something that you you learn from somewhere, right? It doesn't come from maybe it comes from within, but there must have been like messages that you received either from your own family or from the outside world that said like. This is what will keep us safe. Well, I think that I also kind of instinctively knew, kind of growing up as an immigrant, being undocumented was bad thing, and I knew that like our dad was undocumented early on. There was a lot of anxiety surrounding immigration status, and I think I instinctively kind of knew that like, oh, that's something I shouldn't talk about. And I'm not really sure if our parents like told us that you shouldn't talk about it,、um, as if like everybody's talking about immigration <laughs> and like. Thirteen, fourteen. I think that sense of secrecy and like isolation was something that our family just like practiced on a day. Like our parents didn't have a single friend in the two decades. Like we, my sis, my older sister and I also didn't really have a lot of friends. Like we still don't have a lot, a ton of friends. Like we have a close circle of people that we trust. And the only time that we kind of went out was like with our family, like with my mom and my dad. Always like stayed at home. And whenever we went out, it was just my sisters and my mom and I, four of us. And I think there was like this idea that, like, oh, our dad. There are places our dad cannot go. There, there is a risk in my dad being out in the present. And that kind of fear really, like, unfolded. There are times that, like, so for example, one night there was. Like a car alarm going on, like at three four a.m. outside of our house, and then the police came, and you know it's very like very like a normal quote normal thing for anyone to be like, can you take care of this? Can you move this car? Like we cannot sleep. Everybody could kind of fear the presence of police near、mm-hmm. our house, and、mm-hmm. my dad didn't want to go out. He couldn't be seen, and. There are a few times where he was near like governmental buildings, and I could we could clearly see him like tense up and these kind of things. And what was comfortable and what was at risk, and 
we like we created this like very small world for ourselves like in our family and everything outside and everyone else outside felt like a risk for us and um i think that kind of sense of secrecy kind of was sustained through that in that small world and we just we just knew i think i mean it sounds like creating that that world that was just for you and your family might have been you know a, a space that felt safe and i wonder um wanted to ask where where else have you found um spaces of safety or belonging and joy um have you ever you know been able to create those spaces or you know where have you stumbled upon them throughout your life yeah it's 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 that's difficult because as i we've talked about like um that idea of secrecy has really haunted our family for so long that i felt like i couldn't really reach out to anyone and we were so isolated from even my korean american community or we didn't know anyone and i think that was one of the difficulties when our dad was getting um deported and like in detention center and and we just didn't know what to do we didn't know who to reach out to we had no support system we didn't have any network and i think that really represents like bigger issues that like i like cannot sustain like long-term relationship um i have a very difficult relationship to intimacies and trust and everything and when our dad is was in detention center i reached out to just like our my professors because i didn't know what to do and i vaguely remember a professor's brother was a lawyer and like just like really desperate measures to kind of to ask for like help for any to anyone and i had no idea where to go and but i also like didn't want pity from other people like i didn't i wanted to retain some form of dignity for me and for my family and i just didn't really trust anyone that they wouldn't i thought that they were going to pity us and that they were going to look down on us or something but mm-hmm. kind of going through all that process i came out with this really like group of people that i've like found who's um who's helped me through this whole process and that i could trust and that i could have a really strong relationship with and including my professors and my friends and and my family as well like my family like throughout my whole life my family has been the only place that i felt like i belonged and and that's partially because of the immigration and isolation and everything but our family really is like we talk every night we talk about what we ate each day and um we are just really close kind of close knit family um but also i had a like a fear of reaching out to a community or especially asian american community because i didn't want to talk about my dad's immigration status or i didn't i didn't really have i could, i didn't know that i could develop that form of trust with the community maybe uh, now i am more connected and maybe because there are no no consequences now um my dad is deported and there isn't really much to fear for me now and i could share these stories but i sometimes do wish that i wish i had the support system back then because i feel so safe um with fellow asian american 
activists who fight for racial justice and um, in spaces like Opal, um, where it's understood that you know the immigration systems, the exploitative immigration systems, and um, what that does to a family and things like that. So yeah, there are um, there are a few places and a few people that I <laughs> I was able to develop um, healthy, trusting relationships and where I could feel like I belonged. I think there is a certain level of isolation and hardship that you encounter when you're not able to be in community with people who look like you and might have some of the same experiences as, as you do. And when I think of the case of my own family, having grown up in a predominantly white community where there weren't many other South Asian people, I feel like there were so many experiences I didn't have and representation I didn't see. But the other thing for me was that my family's not Hindu and the majority of Indian Americans are. So when I did meet Indian Americans, I didn't have that in common with them either. So that was isolating in its own way. Yeah, it's like weird because I always, um, I don't have a lot of, a ton of Asian American friends. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's also partially from, like I came here when I was 12 and my parents really wanted me to assimilate and like have mm-hmm. like, quote, like quote, white friends, <laughs> you know, um, that partially played a factor. But I also think that I was talking to my older sister about it and my older sister was saying like, oh, like that didn't want you to hang out with other Koreans because they're going to ask you about what do your parents do or you know this is a pretty mm-hmm. common questions to mm-hmm. be asked around when you go to a Korean American friend's house or meet their parents or if, if they you go to a Korean American church or things like that and there was a fear in it but also I think our parents worried that like we would feel embarrassed like about them like to like talk about them in a way that like in the situation that we were in, which is not true. I don't have felt embarrassed, um, but I understand their concern and their fears at the time. And yeah, there were a lot of reasons why I didn't connect with Asian Americans when I was younger. And I, I sometimes like kind of blame myself for it and I wish I had, but at the same time, like I understand why there were factors that played into that. Yeah, I feel like a lot of, um faith communities and yeah cultural organizations they are usually the only place where you know certain immigrants can find a sense of belonging but then at the same time like sometimes there's characteristics of those groups that just (laughs) make it hard for um for people with a different experience to yeah to feel comfortable my parents actually used to be very involved in the Chinese church um, when we lived in Dayton. Like I would go to I would go to Chinese school on, on the weekends. I was part of this like dance team. That was all up until I was like eight or nine years old. And then, you know, my parents, their like their their marriage was having issues. Um, there was mental illness like in our family. And like those things are so taboo. Mm-hmm. And those things, you know, aren't like openly talked about in so many of these settings and same thing like we ended up completely withdrawing from the community 
you know, we ended up moving to a new place that didn't have that kind of community. And yeah, just the isolation of not <laughs> being the same as everyone else when it's supposed to be like this place that's for, you know, people from, from the diaspora. Was there anything about that professor that made it feel like maybe I can talk to this person or reach out? Yeah, I actually started, I have a really good relationships with my professors and I'm so thankful. Um, well, I reached out to three professors. <laughs> One was my advisor. Um, I've known her since I was 18 and um, she's supported me throughout like my entire like 20s and like I'm 30 now and um, she's really shaped my life in a way and impacted me in ways more ways than I can ever repay and um, I told her and it was kind of necessary because I was going through a candidacy exam at the time and I wanted to update her on what was happening and um, I, I think I postponed my candidacy for like a month or something um, because of like the whole deportation and everything else and um, she supported me um, throughout the whole time um, I have told another professor um, that I have a really, really close relationship with and professors don't usually ask like, grad students to um, out for a coffee, like just to like catch up. And But she's the, actually the only professor who um, emailed me. I was like, I'm thinking about you and this remind me of you and let's grab coffee. I'm curious how you're doing. And even before the whole thing, She's, she's always um, been so, so supportive and um, just um, helped me in grad school in general and just a very caring person. And I knew that she wouldn't judge me or, um, and I, um, she made it in a way that like my door is always open if you need help and, um, and I needed help and I reached out to her and another professor, um, She's also on my committee, dissertation committee, and she was on my candidacy exam committee as well. And I think I was taking her class one time. I think during the time I was, I think I was like auditing her class and I had to miss a few classes because obviously our dad was in detention center. And then I told her um, briefly, and then she said that oh, like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And my brother is a lawyer and please let me know if any, there's anything I can do. And Initially, I like passed up on the offer because I didn't want to be a burden and, you know, and but I think um, later I was like freaking out and I just needed like desperately needed help and I didn't know where to turn and I like trusted her, of course, and she's one of the um, professors that I really love and really respect and admire and um, I reached out and she connected me to um, multiple people and she asked for resources and she connected me to a professor, law professor at OSU and um, yeah so there there has been a network of support and help in grad school that I was able to develop and I think in difficult times I like like if there was a, a sense of distrust like in the sense that like oh I don't want them to pity me and uh, I think after kind of going through all of that like like I trust them even more and I like our relationship is at least on my part <laughs> like has been stronger than ever yeah that's amazing and now you are a professor 
No, it's teaching one course, but. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for for sharing that with us. Um, it's just uplifting to hear about those those professors and your relationships with them. Um, and I know, so Eunice, you're part of our immigration storytelling campaign, and um, I know you're involved in you know some of our efforts to um, really look to transform you know this broken system that we have right now. Um, so just from your perspective, if you could you know wave a magic wand, transform the system that we have, what kind of changes would you personally like to see? Oh, where do we begin? <laughs> no, um, I like thought a lot about that, um, but I'm not really sure if there's like one particular aspect of legal system that I can like speak to. But I think if there's a theme of like a system that that I keep coming back to is that um, just lack of safety and protection for immigrants and especially undocumented immigrants and. I keep seeing this idea that like I this not only like safety but like lack of dignity that's granted to immigrants and um, that we needed to prove our loyalty through citizenship like otherwise we don't get protection we, we don't get rights we don't get dignity we don't we are not considered we can't have our humanity and I I see this this um, this dehumanization of Asian Americans and dehumanization of immigrants um, throughout history in the ways that like thousands of Japanese Americans were interned because they couldn't prove their loyalty mm -hmm. or their loyalty was questioned or the ways that Asian Americans are constantly um, perceived as a foreigners or foreign threat or you know this um, idea that you can only be granted humanity if you are loyal to this country. Um, I think that really, um, that really baffles me um, that um, that immigrants can be um, denied these basic human rights and um, this idea of that we can live with um, honor and basic sense of joy and happiness and you know, things like that. Um, yeah. Um, and I also, one thing that I also do, maybe this is like, just like our family's experience. Like if we think about the immigration system, I think we, um, a lot of people kind of focus on um, the legal like system of the government laws and, you know, that thing. Um, I think one of the biggest traumas that came from this deportation and especially for my older sister and she tells this story of how she visited this lawyer who was supposed to be really really great and really really helpful and you know it's really expensive like, like upfront asked for like ten thousand um, dollars which oh we God. didn't I don't yeah <laughs> and um and she um did she Told me about this un like really uncanny kind of experience where she's sitting in this like leather sofa in this really fancy office and the lawyer says that like kind of like sells himself in a way that like you need to hire me um one thing that a lot of people 
regret is that when they're on their flight back home, like or to a country that they're being deport deported to, is that they regret not spending more money on a lawyer and saying that like um i think he, he used some kind of symbolism like describing oh like when they're on a flight bag it's kind of like a dog looking outside the window and you oh know like really so dehumanizing <laughs> i know and it's supposed to be like the best immigrant lawyer and then she's like seeing him and she's seeing all these like newspaper clips and like awards like behind them and and she's sitting there, a lawyer who's like comparing our dad to a dog, and um, she's like, "Should I like hire him? Like, would I regret it? Like, am I a bad daughter if I don't hire him? Or what am I supposed to do?" And this, I think she has a lot of traumas like dealing with these like lawyers and, um, and what like not knowing what to do. And um, there, I, I think it's I think our traumas kind of expand outside of the pure like legal system i think there are many areas where um a lot of immigrants feel dehumanized and um, belittled mm -hmm. i really appreciate your vulnerability in sharing all of this with us and sharing about your family's history because i feel like when a lot of people think about immigration stories there's this narrative of, oh, immigrants are living in a terrible country and then they arrive in the US and they go through hardships, but then they get the ultimate award of citizenship and then they can live happily and be and have upward mobility. And there's so much more complexity and trauma that we don't always hear about. And I, when I think about our immigration system, I just really hope that there are better policies that make people feel included and that they know they belong here and they don't have to pass some sort of litmus test to show that they're unwaveringly loyal to the U.S. because they shouldn't have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also really hate that like narrative of like, immigrants came from this poor country to achieve economic success and but also we have another the immigrant story where like i hope i didn't perpetuate it but um this like sappy story where it's all trauma and there's no um our humanity is defined through our like overcoming of this trauma you know and I, like trauma really isn't like spectacle and it's not something that one easily overcomes and um like personally for me it's still ongoing and um and trauma themselves like, are much more quotidian and and that's not like even to say that traumas always like for me lend they lend themselves to a very complex mixture of feelings for me like i like i feel my sister's trauma and i i feel hurt but i also feel this like vast love for them and um this um, desire to understand and feel for them and I yeah I don't know I, I think there are I think it's more a lot more complex than what um, someone might think mm -hmm. yeah and everything that you said about you know what's important to you in our <laughs> in a, a better immigration system you know just seeing the humanity in the people that are moving through the system 
um, making sure that, you know, it's not just those with wealth who can access like legal representation. Um, those are such huge problems. Yeah, in our society in general, but like it's really visible in the in the immigration system. Um, and you also mentioned, you know, the dehumanization that we're seeing, we've been seeing over the past year, all of these individual acts of violence against um, people who are Asian or Pacific Islander. Like, I don't see it enough people making the connection between those acts of violence and like the immigration system. Mm -hmm. That the immigration system is another weapon that has been used against people who look like us um, for centuries. And, you know, I, I want that to be part of these Stop Asian Hate campaigns as well. Um, since, you know, it's like the, the hot topic at the moment, <laughs> like, oh, people finally care about anti-Asian violence. Well, this is an important part of that, and we have an opportunity to change it. Yeah, I also think that is like really um, like such a like um, charged connection um, comparison because I like we see increasing anti-Asian violence and physical attacks that are happening, and um, just general anxiety and unsafety that a lot of um, API people feel and. And I am, I feel for all of us and I feel so sad, but I also like that kind of anxiety hunts so many undocumented immigrants. Like it hasn't like hunted undocumented immigrants, but like, I think the difference is that um, while like this anti-Asian physical attacks can be done by like anyone, right? Um, um, like I vividly remember like feeling so fearful for like the police officers and um, anyone in uniforms and being near our family and being near our dad and any government actually <laughs> like officers or um, things like that like kind of at night I would like go to sleep imagining like someone stopping our dad in the middle of the street and just being so fearful and it really is like disheartening to see the Asian American community turning to the police when these attacks happen because there is such a close connection between um, this anti-Asian like racism that we see today and the struggles of immigration and how these anxieties have really, um, really um, informed our community like throughout centuries and yeah, I, I wish there was more dialogue on like, do not call the police and do not, mm -hmm. you know, report to attacker, like things like that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, just acknowledging that there are members of the API community who do not feel safe when the police are called. And that's why, you know, with Opal, we, we are pushing for alternatives um, and we're trying to push back against that knee-jerk reaction of like, just pour more resources into law enforcement when there, it really has never worked <laughs> in the past. And um, yeah, that it does bring harm to so many people, not just within the AAPI community, but yeah, black and brown, low-income communities, queer, trans communities, so many communities. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to just 
pushing those, you know, more community-based solutions, um, more creative solutions to like these massive problems. As we close out this episode, we wanted to hand you the metaphorical mic and stage to share what you want the world to know about immigration. So we invite you to fill in the blank, dear world, I want you to know. Dear world, I want you to know. Before I say that, I have one more story that I want to share. Um, oh, this is yeah. my <laughs> case of um, naturalization and I um, this, I think it relates to what I want to say. Um, so my naturalization process, um, of course, like in the court and there's a ceremony, quote unquote ceremony of being naturalized and everything. And before that, you have to take an exam and you have to like swear on uh, like oath, like would you serve in the military? have you ever been affiliated with communist or have you ever been a sex worker on all these things you know and throughout the whole process i feel like really iffy about this naturalization of course i'll take the citizenship i've you know i paid a lot of money and i took the exam and you know there's a lot of benefits and um but i just felt like this this doesn't feel right this this feels something something is not right and I go to the ceremony anyway, and then there they brought this one lawyer um, who's who was born here, but his parents were immigrants. And I think he was like associate. He was a lawyer associated with Obama administration or something, and um, really like kind of prestigious lawyer. And um, they played a video by Obama um, at the time and um, said that um, for this speaker who was a lawyer and. Uh, he he gave this speech about like how his parents came to the U.S. with nothing, like two dollars in their pocket, and but now he went to Harvard and he succeeded, and you can be an American too. You can achieve American dream in a that like motivational speaker. And I was like sitting there, I was like, this sucks. Like I like, <laughs> like I'm not about that. And I think that really um, lends itself to like how I feel about the immigration system and. Um, Asian Americans in general in this country, like, dear world, I want you to know that this country and this government does not want us. It wants our labor. It wants to exploit us. It wants us when we can contribute something. It can. It wants us when they can use us for the appearance of diversity. It inherently and fundamentally does not want us. And I want everyone to know that. I want everyone to actively acknowledge it and work against it. But I was also one fellow Asian Americans and API and um, immigrants and undocumented immigrants to know that that you're not alone. And I hope you don't feel as alone and lonely as I felt or my family felt. And that there are resources and people out there that um, that can help and. I love us so much. I want us to thrive and I think about us all the time and I hope people know like if there's any listener who's out there who feel lonely, like I hope they know that there are so many of us that are that are here. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to our latest episode. 
We are so grateful for Eunice's openness and vulnerability. Um, And this was definitely a special episode for us because immigration has been such an important topic and an important issue for OPAW members ever since our founding in 2016. It's a topic that impacts so many of us personally, um, impacts so many of our families. And I know that there's a lot of pain and trauma wrapped up in, in this huge topic. Um, We also recognize that there are many immigrants, refugees, asylum seekers, and adoptees who still face barriers to sharing their stories openly because of very legitimate fears about ICE or because of past trauma that they've experienced um, through our immigration system. And in Opal, we hope to keep creating spaces where our members can share their stories and find a sense of healing even if they're only telling their story to one other person or even just to themselves. As Tessa mentioned, immigration is a topic that is deeply important to many members of OPAL. We also really believe in the power of storytelling and storytelling as an act of openness, community building, and a way to share important parts of yourself. Currently, we are working on a storytelling campaign that uplifts the immigration stories of AAPIs and other BIPOC communities in the Midwest, and specifically in Ohio. Additionally, earlier in April, OPAL supported the efforts of the Value Our Families National Advocacy Legislative Week of Action. During that week, Ohio had one of the largest delegations in the country engaging in legislative advocacy. Over 30 people in Ohio met with the offices of our representatives and senators to discuss the importance of family immigration and push for compassionate reforms to the immigration system. And thank you, Rhea, for helping to coordinate that delegation. I'm really proud of your efforts during that week. Um, And you had a big role in Ohio showing up in such a big way. Some of the policies that our members and other Uh, communities in Ohio were advocating for included the Reuniting Families Act, which would allow the many immigrant families who are separated due to visa backlogs, um, would allow them to reunite with their families, and the Grace Act, which increases the number of refugees admitted to the U.S. annually. Um, We pushed for a pathway to citizenship for all 11 million undocumented people and TPS holders in the U.S., Um, including those with criminal records. We really pushed for any kind of immigration reform that gets passed to not exclude those with criminal records, um, as well as the New Way Forward Act, which would help to disentangle our immigration system from local law enforcement. Um, We're really proud of the commitment we see from people in our state for more just and empathetic immigration policies. And we'll be continuing to put pressure on our lawmakers to um, pass these crucial immigration reforms um, for the first time in over two decades. And as we sign off, we invite you to please stay in touch with us, follow our updates on OPAL's immigration work and our other campaigns via social media. And if you know someone or you yourself have a story to share and would like to appear on Dear World in a future episode, please let us know. You can reach us at dearworld at opal.org or at Team Opal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.